This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to Around the Dial. Your one-stop shop for sports talk's best moments every day. Here's your host, CBS Sports Radio's Damon Amendolara. Welcome inside the best in your sports talk. It's Around the Dial for Tuesday, April the 9th. I'm your host, D.A., and we have a national champion, Virginia, outlasting Texas Tech in the Final Four in overtime, the national championship game, and the Cavaliers cut down the nets. Think about where they've gone from one year ago, having lost to the 16 seed, the UMBC Retrievers by 20 points, and now one year later, being national champions. How amazing is that redemption story? Here is college hoops writer Mike DeCourcy from the Sporting News who joined the Sports Junkies on 106.7 The Fan in D.C. It's just an incredible story to lose to the 16 seed for the first time ever and then to come back the following year with all that pressure on the team. It was all it was talked about in the offseason and even during the season. That's all they talked about. And to come back and win it, unbelievable job. Middle of January-ish, Right around their second week, maybe they're undefeated. They're at, at that at that point, they're one of, either they, either they were the last or they won, were one of two. I can't remember whether they or Michigan lost first, um, but they are undefeated at thirteen, fourteen, and zero, and they're fourth in the polls. Mm-hmm. And there and there was no question that the reason they were fourth was because of UMBC. No question. Nobody wanted to buy them uh, because of what happened in that game. And there were people last spring after after the loss to UMBC, who wrote that this system would never produce NCAA tournament success. Never. Not, maybe not, never. And that was an opinion that was held by people who've been in this business for a while. And, and, they, and for them to come out in, in the wake of that, and, and, and honestly, the, the truth is that that game, um, that game did change Tony Bennett. Mm-hmm. And it changed him for the better. Because they went away from the movers and blockers offensive system that they had played in the past. That was what he learned from his father. That's what he had done early in his career. And and they had good offenses, better offenses than people realized over the course of the first over the course of the first five years of this reign, so to speak. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, they've now won four ACC regular season titles in six years. Right. Uh, and in that reign, they were for a lot of that time they were playing that system. After last year, they changed to basically a ball screen offense that relied very heavily on on Ty Jerome's ability and Kyle Guy's ability and DeAndre's ability, and and allowed them to be players uh, more so than they had been. And and they and also I think that what, what I remember watching the UMBC game and looking at Tony and thinking. There were times in that game when the clear physical superiority of Virginia was obvious. It, it basically, you know, Ty would just go over and, in certain circumstances, just take the ball out of one of the uh, retrievers' hands. And, and I thought to myself, you know, this is not working. They've got the press. 
Yeah. Maybe it was around 12, 14, maybe, it, it, that many minutes left in the game. I don't remember exactly. But it wasn't four, and that's when Virginia finally did press, and it was way too late then. And so in, in this tournament, he was willing to change. There were times when they changed, like the, their, their great defensive system, the pack line system has definitive rules, and the primary rule is, uh, the pack line is basically an imaginary line that is drawn inside the three-point line, about two, three feet inside. Mm-hmm. And actually, in practice, they, they put it on the floor. That's the first thing they do in practice is tape down the, the pack line. Uh, and and you're supposed every defender is supposed to be inside it except the, uh, the defender who's, who, whose man has the ball outside the pack line. Right. Everybody else is supposed to be inside because it jams up the lane. And in the Purdue game, when Ryan Klein had made four enormous threes two nights earlier against Virginia, uh, in the, then he made a couple early against Virginia against excuse me excuse me a couple Tennessee. nights early against Tennessee, yeah. and then when he made a couple early in the, in the Virginia game, Tony said, "Okay, that's not happening anymore. We can't have that." So every time Purdue executed a dribble handoff, which is the primary way they get Ryan Klein shots. Jack Salt was in the game, and he trapped that that play. So the the guy guarding Klein would come from behind, and and Salt would come from the other side of the screener, and they would trap him. And he did not get another basket in that game once they went to that defense. It shows that Tony has he grew as a coach as a result of the UMBC game, more flexible, more willing to to do different things. And it and and that's why they're here because if they hadn't done that if they hadn't trapped Ryan Klein, yeah, they, they wouldn't have. The they would have lost the game because yeah. Ryan would have made a he he made at least one more, sure. and all they needed was one more. Their path through March Madness wasn't all that impressive. They did not face a number one or a number two seed. Their actual gameplay in these games were not dominant. It was the third smallest margin of victory through the six games of a March Madness for an NCAA tournament winner in 35 years. And on top of that, getting the bailout calls against Auburn, Purdue, and now also an overtime against Texas Tech wasn't the sign of a really dominant team. However, just doing what they did this year, in the wake of what happened last year, that in and of itself is really damn impressive. However, talking about those refs, at the end of the Auburn game, Virginia benefited from the refs not calling the double dribble against the Cavaliers. And now in the national title game, there was an instant replay with a minute and change to play in the overtime. And it was a two-point lead for Virginia. And the ball went out, appeared to be Texas Tech ball. That was the original call on the floor. And yet super slow mo frame-by-frame replay showed that it may have grazed off of Texas Tech and Moretti and out of bounds. And so that was switched, and then the Cavaliers get the ball, and that's a real turning point of that overtime and ultimately the game. So did the refs get it wrong? Here's Sean and RJ on 105.3 The Fan in Dallas. The calls are getting called out uh, from this game. It should have been Tech ball. And I thought... That Gene Steratore, the replay official they had, was very, very good. 
Like, he was smooth. He was breaking things down. Uh, he was very good as a broadcaster. He's the replay official that they had on CBS. But still, people uh, are going back to this Roy that calls, and a call in particular, screwed up because it wasn't, you know, absolutely 100% clear evidence. And the the play, of course, that we're talking about is where the Virginia player knocked the ball away from the Texas Tech player's right hand. And as it left his hand, it appeared to then strike his pinky yes. before going out of bounds. And I'm sorry, that was the right that's the right call. Going off the off the pinky. Like it did touch his pinky. Yes. And I hated it because replay identified it in a moment that a lot of people said, look, the eye test, most people couldn't tell who it was knocked off of. And the guy defending, you know, if he's knocking the ball away, it should be off of him. That's horse S. What are you talking about? If I knock the ball away from you as you're dribbling and it bounces off your foot, who's it out on? It's out on you. Hmm. The mistake was made when you allowed me to get my hand on the ball to begin with. Now, if you got lucky enough for me to knock the ball away and and it go out of bounds and you continue to keep possession, well, that's the way that the ball bounces. But in this case, I don't think Tech fans had a legitimate beef with the referee on on like the referees on this particular call. I don't think they I I don't think they had a legitimate beef on that one. Now, if you really want to be upset, maybe be upset about leaving a three-point shooter wide open in the corner on the final possession of the game when you're leading by 3 and you know Virginia's got to throw it up. Okay, deep. so you don't think it should have been tech ball. No. No. No, I don't think so. I it, Frame by frame, you. I thought you could see it touch the pinky it of did. Auburn to go out of bounds. Auburn, Tech, or Virginia? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Auburn. Uh, Virginia. Yeah, the the pinky, um, the pinky was the offensive player. It touched his pinky. I felt like it touched his pinky. That was Tech. That Tech should have had the basketball. That's what everyone's arguing. I know, and tech I don't. Ball. And I and I and I don't think that's the case. I don't think it should have been tech ball. Okay, I, I think it was correct. Okay, I think they did because let's face it, the spirit of the rule is that ninety nine point nine percent of the time is out of bounds on Virginia. The Cavaliers are trying to stop the open floor by Moretti, and it goes out of bounds. Then you just give the ball to Texas Tech, and they reset their offense down two with a minute and change to play. But instead, if you want to parse everything with frame-by-frame instant replay, there's going to be a lot of calls that once upon a time always went a certain way in the spirit of the game that don't go that way, and I think this was one of those things. I don't think they should have reviewed and then reversed that call. I don't think it was definitive enough. Virginia's the men's champ. Baylor's the women's champ. And Kim Mulkey's Baylor Bears have become a superpower in college basketball. In the middle of their national championship game against Notre Dame, they lose their best player, their heart and soul, Lauren Cox, to an injury. She's on the sideline, and Baylor has to hang on to win. Here is Coach Mulkey with WWL Sports Talk in New Orleans. How'd you rally your troops? How'd you rally the players around that? Well, they rallied themselves. We had... um... You're absolutely right. With a minute and a half to go in the third quarter, you lose the heart and soul and uh, of your team, and not just on the offensive end. She's just so impactful defensively. 
and uh, just kept kept encouraging them and telling them we were going to win this game without her and for her. And she came back out there and she was encouraging them. And um, you knew Notre Dame was going to make a run, but you know we pretty much controlled that game while Lauren was in the game. But the minute we lost her, the, it it energized. Notre Dame, and they went on their run, as they should. They're defending national champions, but we just persevered and made enough buckets. Christy Wallace, you also lost her back on senior night uh, at guard. So your, your team has been used to playing a little shorthanded. Well, actually, we lost Christy Wallace last year, our starting point guard the last game of the regular season, and you can't replace that that late in the year with – with, you know, trying to get to a Final Four. So when Lauren went down, I thought to myself, Lord, I don't know what it is you're trying to teach me, but help me right here be a good coach because I was very emotional at that moment. Hey, Coach, what's Kramer up to these days? Actually, Kramer FaceTimed me after I shook the hands of the coaching staff for Notre Dame. Somebody handed me my phone, and Kramer was screaming. He was on the bus. He's in double A with the Cardinals, Springfield Cardinals, and they were traveling from northwest Arkansas to Tulsa. And they were all watching it, and they were excited. I was excited, and although he couldn't be there in person, that's about the next best thing you can have is him being on FaceTime and talking to his mother in that moment. Coach, there's been a lot of talk about the NBA eventually hiring a female to be a head coach, the first female head coach in the NBA at some point. A lot of people feel like it's going to happen. Do you feel like that's going to happen pretty soon? You know, I I do believe that maybe sometime after I'm retired, but in my lifetime, that an athletic director at a Power 5 school will understand that there are a handful of female coaches that can coach the guy. It just takes the right AD to, to pull the trigger. In the NBA, you're already seeing that. In the NFL, you're seeing it with assistant female coaches now. So the only thing missing is, you know, the power five men making a decision and finding the right woman to do it. Listen, a lot of women have the knowledge, but that's not that's not it. You got to have the it factor. You got to have guys that respect you. You got to know what buttons to push, and then you have to have the connections and relationships and recruiting on the men's side. Coach, would you ever be interested in uh, in coaching at the NBA level? Not at the NBA level. Too many egos. Too much selfishness. I just think that at the um, collegiate level is where I need to be, and uh, it's where I think that I can be most impactful. The national championship game for the women was a remarkable show. It really was, and it was actually more entertaining than the men's. Now, the men did have some big shots late in that game and then in overtime, but ultimately what we saw for the women was truly a special back-and-forth affair between two heavyweights, the defending national champion Notre Dame fighting Irish, and then Baylor coming in, and they've been a superpower in college basketball on the women's side for a long time as well. What a game it was and what heart and guts the Lady Bears showed overcoming the loss of Lauren Cox at the end of that game. That's the glory of sports. How about the pain? What's happening to Chris Davis in Baltimore? Chris Davis has not had a hit all season. In fact, he does not have a hit dating back to middle of September last year. He's in a historic drought right now. Will he ever figure out baseball? This has gotten ugly in Baltimore. Here's the Big Bad Morning Show on 105.7 The Fan. 
So in 522 plate appearance in 2018, Chris Davis batted 168. That was a record. One that he didn't want. So far in the last 49 at-bats, or yeah, at-bats, not plate appearances, but at-bats, he has no hits at all. And he's 0 for his last 49, which breaks a record for a position player in Major League Baseball. Ed Norris, what's more embarrassing? They go the entire season at 168 or to go 0 for 49? I think the 0 for 49. This, because now it's it's so hard to watch. And people were trying to encourage him last night. Yeah. But holy moly, he looks like he, sometimes he can't play baseball. Like, seriously, he just swings and misses like by a mile. And he's swinging at pitches in the other batter's box. And I just, I don't know. I think this is definitely more humiliating. And it's not over. Hey, I can't fathom it. I remember in college literally going 0 for 10. And thinking that I'd never get a hit again. Mm-hmm. That's 0 for 10. Yeah. This guy's 0 for his last 49. And 0 for 10, Jerry, I'm thinking, dude, I'm never gonna hit the, I'm never gonna get a hit again. Yeah. Because you had a liner in that, you had a, a ground ball that I thought I beat out that I didn't beat. You had so many things that happened in 0 for 10. All the things that happened in 0 for 49. He had two on a button last yeah, night. Yeah, he made contact last night. Right. So I, I can only I no, I, I'm sorry. I can't imagine, Jerry. What's going on in his head right now? What's the problem? Is he did he made contact and he he did send uh, one the left field. left field to the warning yeah. track in the last one, but then his last next two bat at bats for strikeouts. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you know he goes right back to it's failure theater is what we're watching yeah. right now. I mean, oh for forty nine going back to September. This is the gold standard for futility, and I mean the sport's over a century old. Are we I going with gold here? Are we going with gold? I can't determine <laughs> what's worse. The one sixty eight average yeah. for the year or O for forty nine. I have to say with that O for forty nine because this But the fact me, that he has two, the fact that we have to choose between those two, doesn't that say enough? What's Be- more unbreakable? Uh, you know, what's more unbreakable? The one sixty eight or the O for forty nine? I mean is it more unbreakable than what Cal Ripken accomplished in the same ballpark? <laughs> the bad thing is we keep saying 0 for 49. We don't know whether it's going to end there. That's what I said. It's going to well, keep going. Do you think yeah. he could go 0 for 100? Do you think it would last that you can't. long? You can't. I don't either. You can't. It's baseball. You get a CNI single. You get. But he hasn't. I mean, he hasn't had a hit since last September. It is amazing. It really is. Think about it. Like. I mean, again, to start the season, he's, what, 0 for 26 right now? I've lost track with, with the number of strikeouts he has. It's like 14 or 15 on the year. I left the game in, like, the, I said, the fourth inning to get somewhere to watch, to where I could watch both the Orioles and the NCAA tournament. And I think after he went 0 for 4, he went to the dugout, and, <clears> and he kind of laughed. So I don't know if somebody said something to him or he just laughed randomly. And there was somebody there said, look at him. Why is he laughing? And I looked. Through, I looked at the person. And said, "What else is he going to do?" Yeah, I mean, that, what right now? What else? What else do you want him to do? Cry? Yeah, Honestly, I, you I, want him to sit in the corner by himself and sulk? You know, I mean, sometimes that's the only thing. When you're that, when when things are going that wrong in your life, sometimes the only thing you can do is laugh at. What can you say about this type of slump? And also knowing that a couple of years ago. Davis was one of the best power hitters in all of baseball. And now the idea that he does not know how to hit a ball is just insane. It's Rick Ankiel, Chuck Knobloch-esque stuff where you just forget. And maybe it's a Markel Fultz situation where you just can't hit a jumper ever again. 
It is crazy, but also knowing that Chris Davis came out of nowhere to become one of the best power hitters in baseball and now falling completely off of the baseball landscape. It is just insane to watch this kind of crazy dramatic arc and then crazy dramatic crash and burn that he's going through. Aaron Rodgers claps back at the story by Tyler Dunn of the Bleacher Report, which detailed from some anonymous sources and some on-the-record sources of major friction of Aaron Rodgers against Mike McCarthy and vice versa. Then also, former teammates calling out Aaron Rodgers for being a bad teammate. And so in Packer country, do they believe Aaron Rodgers? Here's Chuck and Winkler on 105.7 The Fan, WSSP in Milwaukee. We eventually got to move away from it, I think, and and play football. And it's just one thing after another. And I don't blame Rodgers to defend himself, but I I feel like from the very beginning, and I'm talking from the very beginning, Rodgers, when he took over for Favre, never had a chance with Packer fans. He, a Packer fan was bashing this guy, didn't give this guy a break from the very beginning. Maybe they bought into him a little bit after he won the Super Bowl and he won some people over. But I think people kind of always still and I don't I don't I don't get it. Look at him. Oh, he's California cool. Oh, he's uh he's just a stat machine out there. He's all in it for himself. You know, and, uh, he's a cocky quarterback. Well you want your quarterback to be able to have some confidence in himself, you know. And you play sports you better feel that way. So I just feel like Aaron's always looked at that way and I and I don't quite understand it. I think they're buying into him now. I think Packer fans are buying into him now. I think that they're looking at this article, and we've been trained to think that anonymous sources are always lying. We as a country have been trained. That's not true. Okay, they're looking at what I mean. The article by Tyler Dunn. Yeah. So when you look at that article, you think anonymous sources. That means fake, fake news. Mm-hmm. That's not true. That's not true. Well, the the problem I have with anonymous sources is okay. And I'm not saying Tyler Dunn is doing this, but the Rogers prop- is. What's that? Rogers essentially is calling it a smear piece, saying it's a guy trying to advance his yeah, career. Okay, but there's some guys in there who Greg Jennings and Jermichael Finley who are, you know, their names are attached. Okay, to the story. so those guys' names are quoted, and the Packer fans are like, "Yeah, oh, these two knuckle but, nuts again." But but I'm thinking if you're thinking, but if when you say anonymous sources, don't you always kind of like, well, okay. If anonymous, but couldn't you? Couldn't I? You could do anything and say, "Well, yeah, anonymous source told me that uh, this guy thinks this guy stinks." I mean, you could be sitting here all day with anonymous sources. That's my one problem with it. But when there's a name attached to it, that then, then, then there's some credibility behind the story. But I just never have liked that anonymous source thing. And Bob McGinn used to use that all the time. The Journal Sentinel, anonymous sources, all the time. And well, it's do you like, know why they do that? They, I'll give you this info if you don't tell me. If you don't tell people oh, that I'm saying this. Oh, I know. But who's Tell this? people I'm saying it, I'm not going to give you the info. Of course. Of course it is. But who's to say that all those anonymous sources, and I'm not saying with Tyler or McGinn, are all the time believable? What if, here's a conspiracy theory, what if one of the anonymous sources in this whole thing, bear with me, is Mark Murphy? Well, he claims he's not the guy. What if Mark Murphy... Helped plant some of this stuff, mm-hmm. knowing that Rodgers would respond in a certain way, knowing that he would be motivated to prove that he was not the problem, 
knowing that Matt LaFleur was coming into a volatile situation, knowing that the team needed something to rally around. And so Mark Murphy, who else knows the phone call between okay. Mark Murphy and Aaron Rodgers? Well, I, and Let's not think Rogers, Mark Murphy's you know, innocent Well, but, but see, then why would he want to create more drama? Why would he want to split the locker room? Because why what's going to happen out of this, Chuck? Everyone's defending Rodgers. Not everybody His is. former teammates are. Not everybody is. Not, who's not? Packer fans. We don't matter. We'll get behind Rodgers. Well, then why? If you don't like Rodgers, you'll get behind him as soon as they start 3-0. Yeah, okay, yeah. But I'm just... Uh, the, the teammates... I'm not everybody in that locker room likes Rodgers. I think Aaron Rodgers, speaking about this instance, speaking about this article, does in some ways give credence to the article that he's sensitive and that he cares about what people think and that he's always thinking and wondering and maybe lashing out at people that are critical of him. So him doing so in a radio interview doesn't necessarily change any of that. It just lends more credibility to it. But in many ways, I understand what Aaron Rodgers is doing here because if you've got something that really drags you through the mud and you don't say anything about it, then it just allows it to be out there as though it is truth, as though it is real. And him going after Jermichael Finley and Greg Jennings, well, these two guys have made a name off of crushing Aaron Rodgers. They're making a name off of Aaron Rodgers' name. So I thought it was kind of pointed the way that he came back at those guys. At the end of the day, Aaron Rodgers wins, though, because he's the last man standing. Finley and Jennings and McCarthy are gone. So now, Rodgers winning without them? Aaron Rodgers winning with a new coach and with the new wide receivers and new offensive weapons? He ultimately will have the last laugh. And if Rodgers plays great this year and wins with Matt LaFleur, then he has the final say and can stick it up everybody's tailpipe. So let's leave you on a lighter note. How about this story? That there was a high school field in Connecticut, high school sporting field, that was wet, that they tried to dry off. And how did they try to dry out the sports field? By lighting it on fire? Here's the Rise Guys on Sacramento's ESPN 1320. Let's listen in. Somebody over the weekend, I'll have to look up where, I think it was up for high school. They tried again uh, to dry a field by lighting it on fire. Yes. I want to share something with you about that. Now, why do you mention this story? This was on Friday. This was a high school coach in suburban Salt Lake, north of Salt Lake City, who had been, they've been getting a lot of rain, guys, who wanted to dry out the field real quick, right? Mm-hmm. So he went ahead and doused, doused it in, in uh, gallons and gas. gallons. Yeah. Probably not his best decision. So he got suspended, I believe, while they try and work through all this stuff. Uh, he was on administrative leave. Okay. Last I heard. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just want you to know that I saw, because Ryan's uh, high school coach came to watch him play. Uh, UCLA played at Stanford this weekend. And Ryan's high school coach came out to watch him play. And I ran this scenario past Ryan's coach. And Whitey, I just want you to know for the record, I said, hey, listen, you know, I mean, You've tried a lot on conventional stuff. What about the gas? And I just want you to know, to give this guy full credit, that Ryan's high school coach said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Okay. Well, someone did it again in uh, Ridgefield, Connecticut. Okay. Well, still crazy. And the fire department had to come out. And uh, a lot of people are saying, you know, like 40 or 50 years ago, maybe you get away with that. But <laughs> we, have, we have stricter laws now about protecting the environment. We're more aware of the damage something like this can do. So, Yeah. I mean, golly. The gas tends to seep into the ground. Mm -hmm. So 
It was Saturday morning, 11 a.m. Somebody had to pour, let's see, 25 gallons of gas on the dirt, set it on fire. 25 gallons. Yeah. Result was a pretty sizable blaze <laughs> that produced plumes of black smoke. Plus out here, that's like a hundred bucks worth of gas. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I maxed my Chevron card. Cleanup crew spent Saturday night and all day Sunday digging up six to eight inches of contaminated dirt that had to be hauled away. Repairs expected to cost the town at least $50,000. Jeez, that just isn't going to work. Yeah. Okay. So I couldn't even get Ryan's coach to bite on it. And I mean, I've been out there with him. We've we've dumped so many bags of turfus on fields over the years just to get it playable. But gas may, maybe is where you want to go ahead and draw the line, mm-hmm. coaches, just FYI. Yeah. By the way, Rudy Marconi is uh, essentially a, a councilman uh, in Ridgefield, Connecticut. He said, I'm not aware of who exactly it was who got the gas, but we do know is that someone did use some gas around third base and that seemed to work. Others then went to get more gas and began spreading it from second over to third. They lit up that little area and it dried it up. Everyone thought it was working. They thought they could take care of the whole field with gas. One person said they had done it in the past. Mm-hmm. It's been done before, and every situation that's out there ends with negative consequences, he told newspaper there, the Ridgefield Press. There's no question. He said, you, you Google it. Yeah. You just got to Google it and see that uh, it's a recipe for disaster. There's no question it's been done before. Maybe it worked 50 or 60 years ago when there were no environmental regulations, but nowadays it's a definite no-no, end quote. Yeah, I think that's pretty much spot on. I mean, there probably was a time when people wouldn't even really think, oh, yeah, he's burning the infield. Yeah, we got to get it ready to play. Uh, yeah, that's a 4 p.m.er. We got to, yeah, we got to get it ready to play. Light it on fire, I suppose. Although in all the time that I've been in and around baseball, I'd never seen that before. It's, it almost sounds apocryphal to well, you know, it used to get done all the time. Well, you sure? Because I haven't seen it. Look it up. Google it. What groundskeeper thinks this is a good idea? What person employed to work with grass and the grounds thinks that the right idea is spreading gasoline or flammables around the field and then lighting it on fire? I don't understand the thinking behind this. What is the logical rationale behind this? You're just going to torch the entire field. How could you think that this is a good idea? And how has this happened multiple times? (laughs) Yeah, that's the best in your sports talk today for April the 9th. I'm your host, DA, and we will see you tomorrow, everyone. Thanks for listening to Around the Dial. Subscribe now for the best daily recap in sports talk on Radio.com or the Radio.com app. Hey, everyone. Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us, and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 